All right. Well, I would encourage you to um, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21. As together we continue on in the Word of God in the book of Kings. Oh, actually 20. It's supposed to be in 20, I believe. Do you, can you put the slide up on the, uh, the screen by any chance? Thank you, brother. It's uh, 1 Kings 20 as we continue on and finish that particular chapter. As you know, the... Uh, There has been quite some emphasis, obviously, on Elijah as the main prophet who was dealing with wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. He was, uh, at several key points, God's anointed spokesman. For instance, we saw him uh, contesting against the prophets of Baal and their, their nothing God on Mount Carmel and showing decisively the people of Israel that there is only one God in the heavens and the earth. But now the uh, attention of the scripture has changed to focus on King Ahab himself and particularly his conflict with the Arameans, that is the Syrians. They uh, have obviously a great argument and you remember from the map uh, last week, I hope you remember from the map last week, that uh, the Arameans themselves were in quite a bind. They were being pushed down upon by the Assyrians. Their empire wanted to take them over and they'd lost their northern trade routes and so now they needed to break through the northern kingdom of Israel in order to be able to trade with the Arabs and with the Egyptians and indeed to get to the Phoenicians to have access to the sea. So for them it was an imperative that they destroy uh, God's people in northern Israel and also of course there was a natural animus between them because they, they did not worship the same God. Unfortunately, the people uh, of Israel were more than willing to bow before other people's gods, but uh, the Arameans found the entire idea of worshiping somebody else's God detestable. Uh, It is often the case, unfortunately, that pagans are more zealous in their false worship than the people of God are in the worship of the true king. But before we turn our attention now to uh, the interaction of some other prophets, not Elijah with Ahab, let's go to the God who gave us his word and let's ask for his blessing. God, our Father, I do pray now, Lord, that you would take our thoughts off of worldly things, that you would help us, O oh Lord, to, to stop thinking about those things that make us so anxious. Lord, I pray that for myself right now. And I pray, O oh Lord, for uh, all the members here who have come weary and loaded down, disconsolate, perhaps, O oh Lord, uh, <laughs> feeling misused by the world, saddened, uh, that they would have eyes to see your mercy and your grace and your justice and that they would understand that these are things that haven't changed. They are just as true today as they were when the words we're about to read were written. But we pray, Lord, that you would give us light. Help us to apply these things in our own day, in our own time. And help us, O Lord, not to fall prey to the Syrian theology, which is so bad. But uh, Lord, instead, help us to cleave to the true theology of your word. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Reading 1 Kings chapter 20, and then I'm going to be reading verses 21 through to the end of the chapter. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, therefore they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing, 
dismissed the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places, and you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went out against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver all this multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day the battle was joined, And the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day, but the rest fled to Ephek, to the city. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. Then Hadad fled and went into the city, into an inner chamber. Then his servants said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please, let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at this word and said, Your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, Go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had him come up into the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor, By the word of the Lord, strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. And he found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me, and he said, Guard this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Well, your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and displeased, and came to Samaria. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We, uh, in looking at chapter 20, had already seen one particular mercy Uh, An unearned mercy. All mercy is, of course, unearned. We cannot merit mercy. But we saw one unexpected mercy in this chapter when God gave Ahab, who didn't deserve victory, victory over Ben-Hadad and the armies of Aram at Samaria. 
and it seemed impossible that they would triumph. The, uh, the city was already invested by this giant enemy army, and yet the Lord gave him that victory to show that he, the Lord God Almighty, was more important than princes and men and horses and chariots and all of the things that kings tend to lean upon. Now, you would think that somebody was saved from utter destruction, okay? His, his entire nation is facing annihilation, uh, not simply becoming a vassal, but being utterly taken over by the Syrians. He himself is about to lose his wives and all of his possessions and so on, and the Lord intervenes and saves him. You would think that that person would be grateful, but you would be wrong. Ahab doesn't hold a feast to celebrate Yahweh's deliverance. He doesn't even end ball worship. There is no reformation. Imagine that. God delivers you, and you continue to worship false gods who are incapable of delivering anybody. Um, but unfortunately, that is something that you will find in the unregenerate, those who have not been called, effectually called to faith in the Lord. It tends to be their nature to be ungrateful instead of grateful. No matter how much mercy they are shown, they will always feel that whatever they were given, they were entitled to. And therefore, they will be ungrateful for it. It was merely what they should have had all along. And it doesn't matter how much you give to those individuals. It will never be enough. And if you want proof of that, just consider this fact. Adam and Eve were put in the garden and given absolutely everything that they could need. The temperature was perfectly controlled. They could stroll around naked. They could put forth their hands and take food at any time they wanted. The animals didn't hurt. They didn't even get mosquito bites back then in the garden. Everything, absolutely perfect. And yet, they're still unsatisfied and they rebel against God, demanding the only thing that God had forbidden after saying, this will be a curse to you. It will cause death if you put out your hand and you take it. What we learn, brothers and sisters, or at least what we should learn, is as it is, we must have our eyes opened up to see how unworthy of mercy we are in order to appreciate mercy. If we understand how much we need justice to be administered to us rather than mercy given to us, then we will be very grateful when we don't receive justice but mercy. And Ahab's eyes are closed to that. He does not understand at all. Now, the same unnamed prophet once again delivers a warning from God to Ahab, the same prophet who told him that God was going to deliver the armies of Syria into his hand outside of Samaria. Now he comes and he tells him again. He warns him the Syrians are going to attack in the spring. The spring was the campaigning season. Uh, the crops had already been planted. The rainy season was past, so the roads weren't muddy and impassable anymore. Samuel 11.1 1 puts it, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle. That was the campaigning time. Well, that's when the Syrians are going to come at you again. So get ready. They are coming back. Uh, now, we know this is not a really good guess on the part of the prophet. What happened, obviously, is the God who has ordained everything that comes to pass had told the prophet to tell him what was going to happen. This is predictive prophecy from the Lord. He had ordained these things. He'd said they're going to happen. And now it was up to Ahab to act accordingly. Now, Ahab, obviously, he'd already seen throughout this chapter in the earlier chapters, he'd seen the power of the Lord at work, and he knew the prophets spoke for God. So he doesn't hesitate. Note this. He may be 
a worshiper of false gods, an apostate, but he's not an idiot, and he understands that when God says something is going to happen, it is going to happen. So he musters the troops, such as they are. And remember that he'd only had 7,000 before with which to defend Samaria. So this is a very small army. It looks, when finally they, they come to battle against the Syrians, it looks like it says, two small flocks of goats compared to this teeming sea of Syrians all around them. Meanwhile, uh, the scene shifts the Syrian camp, and we get to hear from the advisors of Ben-Hadad II, who are at least bright enough also to immediately understand, and this is, this is a good thing, I mean, they understand that their defeated Samaria was supernatural. They understand that the God of the Hebrews had given them the victory. Would that people today saw the hand of God in the events that happen, when nations rise, when nations fall, when things go wrong, that God is there and trying to tell us something. But in any event, they know that there is a God who helps the Israelites, and they understand he was the one who gave them victory. But what they don't understand is anything of the true nature of God. They really do not. You see, just like the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Greeks, and so on, the Arameans thought that there was this huge pantheon of gods, and each of them was associated with a different city and, and, and a different natural uh, effect, a different force of nature. So, for instance, their false god, Hadad, was a rain god, and he was associated, therefore, with fields and plains, which he made fertile. The Syrians, of course, assumed that the relatively new city of Samaria which had been built on a hill 300 feet high, had been built on that hill for religious reasons. It was surrounded by mountains. It was high and lifted up. And so they said, aha, the Israelite God is a mountain God. They built their city on a hill in order that they might be nearer to their God. But the Israelites had not done that because of God. They'd done it because uh, if you can go to this day, you see that the hill is immediately defensible. Uh, but they nonetheless draw the false conclusion. They assume that was why they were defeated there. They were fighting a mountain people with their mountain gods. So they will change their strategy. And so they go to Ben-Hadad and they make a military point and a theological point. First, they argue uh, that it's time for him to not just gather the same army that he gathered before, but to replace the 32 kings, the guys who had wasted his time in the command center drinking. These men were probably potentates and sycophants, and they didn't really have much value on the battlefield. They said, no, this time, muster captains from the people, uh, military professionals, Guys who are dedicated to their job, not just men who are valiant at drinking. What we need are men who will fight, who are experienced in war. That's their military advice. Get use of the useless potentates. And that's sound, but then they go down to the theological advice. They say, rebuild the army, man for man, chariot for chariot, horse for horse, and fight on the plains. That way, when we fight them and we win with the same army, everyone will see the power of Hadad. And the theological part, that wasn't sound. The military reasoning was, the theological not so much. Now, God, who is omnipotent, and who says in Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, knew what was going on amongst the high command. He knew they were making plans for this rematch between their version of Baal, Hadad, and the Lord God. So he sends another unnamed prophet, the man of God who's spoken of here, and he tells him, I'm going to deliver this great multitude into your hands. Once again, you're going to see an army that looks 
completely unbeatable, but I am going to give them to you just as surely as I gave, well, he doesn't say it here, but just as surely as he gave the army of the Midianites, this mighty host into the hand of Gideon, he is going to do this, and he's going to deliver that, and then you will know I am omnipresent, I am omniscient, I am omnipotent, I am the one who alone is amongst the gods. I am the only creator. There is no other god on all the earth. Now, just as uh, an interesting excursus, the question is often asked, uh, are the false gods of the nations, were they, were they just nothing at all, or were they demons? Well, it's, that's an interesting question. I'm sure that some of the false gods were, were just nothing at all, the creation of men's hands. But uh, interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians 10, 19, Paul says this. He says, what am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? He goes on to say, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So Baal and these, these false gods, they're associated with demons. That's who they were actually worshiping. And God is going to give Ahab this victory. I mean, because another good question is, why would he give Ahab this victory? Ahab is completely unworthy of it. And the northern people, they hadn't uh, called for reformation, although there was still a remnant. And that's very important. Brothers and sisters, we, we seldom stop to think of how many awful things could have happened in various countries, but they did not because the Lord still had his people there. And therefore, he was merciful to them. I am very grateful that a substantial popula- portion of the population of the United States is still Christian. I have no doubt that things would be much worse uh, by far if they were not. We only need to look at some of the countries where Christianity has sunk down to the, to the low single digits to see what kind of awfulness can, can occur there. But in any event, in the whole world, and remember this every single day, in the whole world there is no nation or tribe or place where God that is, Yahweh, Jehovah, the triune God of the Bible, does not have dominion. He is sovereign throughout the entire universe. And so what he is going to do is he's going to defeat the Syrian army in the plains to show that not only is Baal powerless to oppose him, or Hadad as they call him, but that he is sovereign everywhere and can deliver his people whenever he wants. So once again, this tiny army goes out to meet the foreign host, and they encamp against uh, one another for a week. Uh, I don't know why they didn't fight for a week. Perhaps they were preparing, but finally they come to blows, and it is a massacre. Another blowout, 100,000 are slain in the field, and the rest of the army fly to this walled city of Aphek nearby, and they're hoping to be protected by those walls, but as at Jericho, God drops the walls on them, and 27,000 are killed. This leaves only 1,000 men to Ben-Hadad in all of the Syrian army. Now, it was clearly God's intention to entirely destroy the enemy host. This was a, a host that had sinned against him and his people that had spoken against him. It was time for them to go, time for their judgment day. And that would include Ben-Hadad and his servants. Uh, the Hebrew there indicates, incidentally, uh, it's, it's actually kind of amusing, that he had hid himself in a chamber within a chamber. Do you know what a chamber within a chamber is? We would call it a closet. So he, he and his advisor were hiding in a closet, and obviously he'd be found eventually. Uh, I'm sure the, uh, Ahab would have held the, the world's largest game of hide-and-seek, and eventually he would, have, uh, he would have discovered him. He's in the closet, isn't he? Anyway, so he tries 
What does what Ben-Hadad do? He tries begging for mercy. He puts on sackcloth of mourning to indicate that he is cast down and now he is a servant. And he, he tops that off by putting a rope, or we should imagine a halter, around his neck to indicate that I can be led about now by the king of Israel wherever he lives. So he does all of these things, grasping at straws, hoping he'll get a mercy that he doesn't deserve from the king. And when Ahab hears Ben-Hadad is alive and he's hiding in the citadel in the innermost part of the city in the closet, he's overjoyed. He's my brother king, he says. Ben-Hadad, I love that guy. He's the best. Come on up to the chariot with me. Ride with me, would you? Make poses with me. Anyway, well, uh, he's, he's awful. And he's full of pomp and he's full of magnanimity as though he'd won the battle. And so he is so graciously deciding to spare this, his fellow king. Now, note this. Syria at this point is on the ropes. Syria's army has been destroyed, but only a fool wouldn't have seen that they would bounce back quickly, that they would recover. They were a much, much larger nation with greater resources. And if they were given that chance, that they would end up fighting against the northern kingdom again, no matter how many treaties he signed with them. But Ahab does it anyway. He makes a treaty, so note this, he makes a treaty that doesn't grant him anything he couldn't have taken at that moment. And he ensures also that his descendants will continue to be hounded by the Syrians. And we should be reminded also of how Saul spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites, despite the fact that God had said, you're to put them all to death. So he breaks God's commandment. He offers mercy to a man who didn't deserve mercy. And in so doing, he also damages his posterity. He damages the people of Israel. This wasn't mercy. It was foolish arrogance. But, but God isn't finished speaking to him yet. He sends another prophet to Ahab. Um, while I can't prove it, I, I tend to think that that unnamed prophet is probably Micaiah, uh, the son of Imla, which is why you have the exchange between Ahab and Jehoshaphat uh, when they're about to go to fight the Syrians in a couple of chapters in 1 Kings 22, 7 and following. So, and Jehoshaphat said, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here, that is in the northern kingdom, that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things, that a prophet of God would speak bad things. But uh, people also are often upset by the exchange that occurs initially because um, they, they feel sorry for Micaiah's neighbor. He goes to him and he says, strike me, the Lord wants you to hit me. And the neighbor says, no, I'm not hitting you. And as a result, he ends up getting eaten by a lion. How is that fair? Well, understand the message is uniform throughout the chapter. The message from God at this point is uniform. When the Lord says strike, you strike. You don't question and you don't hold back. And the man disobeyed the word of the Lord and therefore he himself was struck down. So when Micaiah finally does find somebody who is willing to do what the Lord says, and he draws blood from, uh, from a head wound, and he puts on a bandage, and he pretends to be a, a soldier wounded in battle, he confronts Ahab with this petition. And he says to him, I was, uh, I was uh, uh, told to guard a prisoner, but he got away. Now, in the ancient world, this was the way it worked. If your prisoner escaped, you were put to death. This was to discourage people from taking bribes or letting people who shouldn't be uh, let out go. So uh, his life would be forfeit. 
But here he also mentions that another option was given him. I, I hope you saw it as I was reading. He could pay a talent of silver. That's a monumental amount of money. But if he paid that, his life would be saved. So he's asking the king for mercy. He's got this princely sum he needs to pay. The implication is, okay, if you would just spare a talent of the silver, I know is abundant in, in your coffers now after this great victory, uh, then I can, be, I can live. But, but here we see Ahab only shows mercy to foreign kings and not the common people of his own country. Curse me, there's a lot of that going around. But he says, you've said it yourself. You're going to die. I'm not going to pay your ransom. You are going to die. And that, at that point, the prophet drops his disguise and he says, no, that's what you did. And now Ahab, your life and the life of your nation is forfeit. You have thrown it away. Now this is that moment rather like you know, David and Nathan. Nathan comes to David and he tells him this parable about the, the man who had one little sheep and then a man who had tons of sheep and how the man with tons of sheep took the little man's beloved lamb and, and used him for dinner. And uh, David is incensed. Such a man should die. And then Nathan, of course, points the finger and says, you to man. That's you, David. You're the evildoer. And when Nathan said that to him and confronted him in front of his entire court, what does David do? David says immediately, I have sinned. He's convicted. His conscience is worked up. But not with Ahab, unfortunately. His reaction remains that of the unregenerate. He is absolutely unwilling to repent and accept that what he did was wrong. So instead, he does the thing you do when you're, you are confronted by sin and you have no conscience except that, that still small voice that's crying out, yeah, yeah, we really are wrong. Shut up! I don't want to hear from you! Ugh. person gets all sulky and and so on. He gets angry at Micaiah. He always speaks evil of me. He prophesies falsely and says things that hurt my feelings. They're true, but they hurt his feelings. And so he goes off in a great huff and he sulks. Well, let me give you three applications very quickly. We know that mercy is indeed receiving what you don't deserve. And there is a mercy, brothers and sisters, we need to remember this, that is good and healthy. Our salvation, does it not, depends upon mercy. There is not one person in this room who did not deserve to go to hell. All of you. I know you're very nice people. I I know that you're descended in many cases from, from legions of nice people who baked cookies and were into philanthropy and things like that. But all of you are sinners. And all of us have committed treason against our creator God, that good God who gives us all we have need of. And we deserved hell, but he saved us by his mercy. When we were yet rebels and enemies, he redeemed us. And therefore, our love for Christ should be all the greater. It should be like that woman who, who, having been forgiven much, loved him much and was willing to wash his feet. That should be our response, not the ungrateful response as though we deserved it. So there is a good mercy, but there is also a counterfeit worldly mercy. It's a detestable mercy, which becomes commonplace in nations that are in the midst of a rebellion against God. What happens is the people who are given the responsibility to chasten and punish in those nations, 
to act as vice regents for God, to bear the sword in his name in order to recover or to remove evildoers and to protect the good, they stop doing this. And that includes all three spheres of sovereignty within the church and within the family and within the government. So a child is acting horrifically. He's rude. He's spoiled. And the parents say, well, well, he's just being a boy. You know, I, 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 my parents, they, they spanked me. I wouldn't want to do that to a kid. They spanked you because they loved you. You're not loving him. And what you're doing is you're creating not only a child who's going to be detestable to the world, you're creating a rod for his own back by his awful behavior. He's going to grow up angry and sulky and unhappy. Or you, you see people get flash mobs in the UK and the United States. Uh, they loot stores with impunity and so on. But no, no, we, must not, we mustn't condemn them. Society is to blame. They just need bread. That's why they're stealing tracksuits. You know, it, it's, it's foolishness. And the civil magistrate is failing in his duties at that point in time. Elders or members of the church commit sin or they, they teach falsehood. And instead of discipline, it is ignored. It's swept under the rug. What happens in all of these cases? Well, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the lump. That detestable mercy, which is no mercy at all, because it should have been justice applied to the unrepentant, ends up fostering evil itself. The evil spreads. This is not mercy, and the effects of this counterfeit mercy are horrible. There is a time for mercy, absolutely, and it should always be extended to the repentant. One of the things, though, that we tend to forget is there, there still need to be worldly punishments even to the repentant. The Puritans understood this. They would go with men who had been guilty of murder. They would go to the gallows with them, praying for their souls, urging them to repent. And oftentimes that man, in the last moments, would see his peril, that it was greater than simply to be hung, that, that he was on his way to hell as well, and he would repent. And the Puritans would say, stop the execution. He's a new man. No. They would rejoice that in a few moments that man was about to enter into the presence of his Savior and had nothing to fear there. But they knew that the earthly punishment, the justice, the recompense still had to go forward. People who forget God forget that. And then they act all magnanimous. And they think that they're doing good. One of my, my favorite movies, and yeah, it's another episode of Andy Ruins movies, um, is uh, Lord Jim. It's based on a book by uh, Joseph Conrad made in 1965, Peter O'Toole. He said it was his best role. I don't think it was. I think it's still Lawrence of Arabia, but all that is immaterial. Um, it, it's the story of this young Englishman who goes out to the east to, uh, to be a merchant. Uh, eventually, he wants to be the captain of his own merchant ship, but there's this awful incident in which he does something cowardly, and it haunts him. He doesn't think he's worthy of living with Europeans any longer, so he goes deep into the jungles of Cambodia to uh, a... Uh, uh, a village named Patnasan, it, it doesn't matter, but eventually the, one of the critical points of the movie, which I'm going to destroy, uh, happens when two men who he has, he, he eventually he does an amazing job of rescuing the people. He obtains the title Tuan Jim, Lord Jim, amongst this, uh, this uh, group, this village, and he becomes their protector. 
and their main advisor. Well, this awful man by the name of Gentleman Duncan Brown uh, and his ruffians attack the town. They're looking for treasure and they end up killing some of the villagers. There's an exchange of gunfire and then Duncan Brown and his men are trapped on an island. And so they're at the power of the, the villagers. I mean, all they have to do is keep them trapped there and they'll all starve to death eventually and they don't have enough forces on the island to break out. But then Brown works on, on Jim, you know, aren't we both... Aren't we both white guys in the middle of, the, of the, uh, the, the jungle? Aren't we both, you know, men who favor has, or providence has not smiled upon? Aren't we men who need a second chance? I need a second chance, Jim. Let me go. And Jim foolishly says, go. And he even pledges his own life. My life will be forfeit if yours, uh, if you do something, if anybody in the village is killed. Unfortunately, the village uh, chieftain's son is then killed because, of course, Gentleman Brown breaks his word and attacks them again. Jim was full of magnanimity, thinking, well, yes, you know, bygones be bygones. Let's give this guy another chance. And he put the safety of all of those people on the line. We do that when we act like God ourselves. I hope you see that. What was Ahab doing? He was acting as though he was God. He was the center of the universe. He was the one who decides who lives and who dies, who dispenses justice and so on. Men who are filled with power and who unfortunately have unregenerate hearts will do that. They will act in a way that indicates they feel they should be the God of this universe. In fact, that they are And unfortunately, it means other people end up suffering. Remember that. Remember the value of justice as well as mercy. At least, though, Jim pays for his failure with his life. But today, the high and mighty make decisions that they don't have to suffer from because they are usually insulated from the decisions they make, which makes it all the worse. Second application is this. It's watch out for the the pagan Syrian theology that you see here. This is the idea that that God's power is limited to certain spheres and that he is powerless everywhere else. He is not, for instance, the God of the public schools. He is not the God of the workplace. He is not, he's, he's God here in this room on Sunday, but everywhere else. No, no, that God can't operate there. The civil society that we live in does this all the time. God is just something that you can personally, you know, you can partake of and indulge in by yourself. In private, you can, you can do that kind of thing. But everywhere else is a God-free zone. Now, I want you to know that that's never the case. There is no place on earth that is God-free. He, he rules throughout the universe. And if we will not give him his wor- our, the worship he's due, we inevitably end up giving it to idols, to demons. And so as God has been forcibly, as we might, might put it, evacuated from society, the worship of demons has followed after. That's why we look the way we do at this point in time. But Christians, we can do it too. We can limit the power of God to certain spheres and say he's not powerful in other spheres. He can't do anything. God is powerless to fix my marriage. God, and I've even seen pastors in the PCA say this, God is powerless to take, away, to, ta- uh, to take away our sexual sinful desires. Or our sinfully, sexually sinful desires? That's the word I'm looking for, or phrase. 
He can't fix my heart. He can't take away my anxiety. He can't give me peace and so on. He can't fix my brain. He can't do this. He can't do that. His power is limited. He's the God of Sunday morning. He's the God of fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, but he's not the God of the quiet times when I'm alone. There are certain areas of my life and the world, we say, that God can't fix. He can't convert my loved ones, for instance. But thankfully, throughout Christian history, legions of monikas have prayed for their sons and their husbands and their daughters. And they have been brought to faith by the God who can work where and when and how he wants to. Nothing limits him. And you, brothers and sisters, have access, believe it or not, at his invitation to the unlimited power of God because he's ordained prayer as the means by which he changes things, most particularly us as we pray. One of the reasons why we don't pray is we just, we, he can't help me in this situation. Somehow this is, this is outside his sphere of influence. I've seen people do that all the time. Pray for your marriage. Ugh, it's too late. Can't do anything now. Really? Too late. You're both still alive. I don't think it's too late. I am grateful that the apostles uh, did not have that, that broken misbelief, that they did not suffer from the Syrian theology that God was the God of, of Israel only and not the whole world. For Jesus had told them that they were going to be his witnesses to Samaria, and well, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, everywhere, that they would bring this gospel message that they would bring that message that, that Isaiah had proclaimed in Isaiah 45.22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God reigns everywhere. Brothers and sisters, remember that. Don't succumb to this awful Syrian theology, this false belief. Never give up your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and your trust that he can do everything that he wills. Let's go before him in prayer. God, our gracious Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you are the God who proves again and again that you are sovereign. Time and again, you have done that which we could not do for ourselves, and we can trust you. We can trust you, Lord, for our lost loved ones. We can trust you, O oh Lord, for our nation. We can trust you, O oh Lord, for our marriages, for our homes, for our children, for everything. But Lord, we sometimes hesitate to do so. But you have proven, you have proven that you are worthy, Lord. You did not need to do so, but you graciously did that. Thank you for the mercy that you showed us. Help us, O oh Lord, to repay it with gratitude and repentance. We can never repay you for what you have given to us. But Lord, we can certainly be grateful. I do, Lord, also pray that you would help us not to adopt this, this feeling that we're God and, and give this counterfeit mercy, this detestable mercy to people who don't deserve it who don't, O oh Lord, repent, and who will misuse any mercy they're given. Let us